everybody, welcome to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. I often gets, get asked about the other podcasts I do, BDE, Big Digital Energy. We call it the weekly summary of the energy business for people that think Jim Cramer sucks. Anyway, we did a cool episode of it this week. I normally co-host with Colin McClellan, who couldn't join, but Kirk Coburn, the longtime energy technology investor, was my co-host. Thought it was a pretty good episode, so I figured I'd share it with you today. BDE is also available anywhere you get a podcast. Just search for Big Digital Energy. Hope you enjoy it. I do have to say that there might be big government listening to us and that's, oh, that's why true. we're cutting in and out because what we're going to say is just incredible. So is it, and they're afraid. Is it big government? Is it Hillary Clinton or the story we're going to get to Elon Musk? It's big tech. It's, it's big, big tech. tech and big G. There um, we go. But let's just go through this. So, so our president says it, it's war profiteering and we're looking at these big profits, but we actually were curious. Hey, we're curious here. <laughs> And we might get banned from Twitter for saying this, but if you look at the tech giants, Microsoft, Apple, and Google, their profits are huge, like three times more than the oil giants. So, so is it the fact that we don't want to look over here and we want to blame someone else? Because that's what's happening. Because if you look at Microsoft, 34% profit margin, Apple, 34% profit margin, Google, 22%. And their actual margin dollars are almost twice as high as the oil and gas companies. So what, what does that say to you? Yeah, because, I mean, you look at profit margins on Exxon year-to-date, it's 13.5%. Chevron, it's 16%. And we put Shell in here at 11%. And BP's probably... So if you average those up, the oil majors have done just under 14%. I think the average profit margin of a company on the S&P 500 is about 13%. So you're basically looking at an industry that's doing slightly better than average year to date. And you're saying they're the problem. They need to pay a tax. But let's not look at the tech giants whose average profit margin is 30%. Yeah. Well, and nothing the, to see here. Well, and the other thing that's wild about it is Apple can literally download a new operating system that makes this piece of hardware worthless and I have to go buy a new one. That's right. Could you imagine if the oil companies were doing that? I know you, you filled your tank up, but by the way, it's not going to run. No, Drive your I actually, car now. Uh, I actually um, charged it up because I have an EV. But the good news is it's being charged off the South Houston nuclear power plant or whatever the coal plant. I can't remember which one I'm probably pulling power from. So I'm actually being charged via uh, carbon. So I feel good about that. But, it, you know, kind of a serious point here, though, and I've, I've made this remark too many times on the podcast. I think one of the things that happens is. We can celebrate our tech entrepreneurs like Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, Steve Jobs, those guys, because generally when tech's doing really well, the economy's doing really well, mm -hmm. and they look like heroes, and we celebrate them, and they can be eccentric. Unfortunately, energy runs counter-cyclical. So when we're doing well and oil prices are high, it's usually a drag on the economy. There's true. There's a recession vibe going around. And too often, I hate to say this about our people, but we've been dicks. 
right? <laughs> I mean, freeze a Yankee bumper stickers. I say that a million times, but so, you know, we've got to be cognizant of that as, as an industry, because that what that's why with an average net profit margin, Biden can get up there and attack us. And at least some of the blows land. Yeah. I think when you, when you are the underdog, you need to walk a little bit with a softer hammer. No pun intended. We'll talk about hammers <laughs> later, won't we? Next story. Wow. <laughs> He's bringing it. Woo. All right. So Elon takes over Twitter. Yes. And I'm freaking loving this because he, he kind of floats the trial balloon of, hey, if you want your blue check mark, you have to pay $20 a month. And Stephen King posts, $20 a month. I drive traffic here. You should be paying me. I'm not going to do it. And Elon Musk tweets back at him, what about $8 a yeah. month? So this is happening in like real time in front of us, which one is really cool. But two, what's this actually going to mean? Free speech? What, what, what do you think? Well, I mean, I think, you know, let's, let's be um, honest here. The, the employees of Twitter have been against dissenters, dissenting opinions for a while. And that's pretty clear. I think what Elon's trying to do is is really create a um, a community where we can actually debate. Now, he's also a businessman. He's an owner. So from an ownership perspective, you know, what Elon's done, doing is trying to make money. He's cutting staff. He's cutting the whiners. I mean, again, we talked about this earlier. He's an owner, not an employee. And employees, hey, guess what? You can quit and go work for someone else. But Elon wants to make money, and I, I applaud that. And, and the way to make money is to create open debate. Well, and because I think uh, uh, Murdoch figured this out and Roger Ailes figured this out with Fox News. Hey, man, there's this small little niche audience, half of America, that we can go market to if, uh, if we give them product they like. So I think one of the issues with Twitter being the owner is Hey man, we're driving a lot of discussion and active mm -hmm. engagement off of the platform by not letting conservatives have their voice and the like. So no irony here that the guy that made all his money off electric vehicles is going to be the savior of the oil and gas uh, discussion in the world, but uh, maybe so. And I don't, I don't think, you know, let's not give over credit to Elon. I don't think necessarily is a conservative nor cares about conservatives. I think he cares about open debate maybe, or he cares about making money. But I think the reality is, is what we're seeing is maybe, and it's still too early to tell, maybe this is a place where we can have an open discussion forum. Because by the way, 60%, I believe of the United States is falls on the conservative side. And conservatives naturally are not as boisterous and loud with their opinions. Twitter yeah. enables that. Well, and I gave a speech to E. Koga a couple of weeks ago, mm -hmm. the Eastern Kansas Oil and Gas Association. That's what I was going to say. Oh, of yeah. course, everyone knows. We were at a, a casino in the middle of uh, nowhere, Kansas, which was kind of <laughs> cool. But uh, it was like, it was like me giving the speech. Then I think the next night was the Righteous Brothers playing. So that Excellent. that gives okay. you the, the venue that we were, we were at. But um, one of the things I, I actually said is if we as oil and gas want to have a seat at the table to have a discussion, to be part of it, to be constructive, we got to do a lot of stuff. But I think like 75% of it is just proving that we're human 
because we right. we have kind of buried our head in the sand for a long time. And so one of the things I said is everybody has an iPhone. I want you to literally, if you're out in the field, shoot a pump jack and tell somebody how it works and just right. post it on Instagram or right. post it on Twitter or wherever. If you're looking at a production plot, literally say, hey, guys, did you know that an oil and gas well is a declining asset? It makes more yesterday than it made today. It's going to make less tomorrow. Here's what it looks like over time. We just we need people to know that we're human and we need to explain stuff to at least get close to getting some acceptance. And hopefully Twitter freeing up allows us to do that. I think that's a good point, Chuck. But let's also talk about reality. The rest of the world knows we're human. In fact, the rest of the world actually doesn't care about the narrative as much as certain small, very loud voices care about the U.S. Now, there are countries, and we'll talk about the climate accords and so forth, but the reality is most of the world does know that we're human because that's the energy powers the world. It's just the loud voices here in the U.S. that I think since we live in the U.S., we live in Texas, we're part of the United States, we feel that burden. But it's not the same. I mean, it is the same in some places. Like it is the same in The Hague, you know, when Shell's headquarters. The, there's a lot of people that do not like Shell there. But I think that's a pretty small group of people. And But they are the loudest. So we do have to, in some, some ways, have to figure out how to get our voices known to them. So the two things I think we have to do is, one, get outside the echo chamber. Because you and I can yeah. sit around and talk energy stats and high five each other and all that. And we haven't convinced anyone's mind, you, you know, changed anyone's mind. I think that's one. And two, the reason I don't think we're that far off from actually being able to do it, despite this defeatist attitude we have in energy. I'll just give you an example. I was opening up zoom calls this summer and just having quote unquote kids come on and tell me, Hey, why are you in the energy business? Why did you choose to go to a different industry? And one, call it 24-year-old engineer out of Canada, said, Chuck, you want to know what's going on? I said, no. And he goes, well, first three years at university, oil and gas company sends a 55-year-old white male. He gets up there. He titles his presentation, Exploring for Oil and Gas. 20 people show up. By the time his speech is over, 10 people are left there. They get one engineer, maybe. My senior year, they sent a 27-year-old uh, who had grown up in India, come to university in Canada, titles his speech, Utilizing AI to Image the Subsurface. That's cool. And 200 people show up for it. His opening line was something to the effect of, holy shit, I've never talked to this many people in my life. And he gets up there, he's dynamic. By the end of his speech, there are 400 people in there. And that same oil and gas company got 15 engineers that year. So we're not that far off from being able to relate to people and engage people. I don't think this vast middle ground hates us as much as we think they do. I've written about this, and there's some good stats in one of my blogs that I'll have posted maybe later. But the reality is oil and gas is a conservative industry because it takes a long time to build. You're building 50-year-plus assets. There's a lot of risk on the line health and safety, it's dangerous, right? Um, you don't want to put someone that is wet behind the ears in charge of an asset that could, you know, be the make or break of your company, of an industry, or of the lives of people. So it makes sense why even in the digitalization of oil and gas, most of the people leading the digitalization are sort of old oil and gas people. 
that's changing. I know we talked about the great generational crew change, which has been late, but I think the conservative nature of the industry has sort of created this. Versus if you look at tech, I was a young tech guy at Dell, you know, when I was young, um, we were all in our twenties and we were promoted quickly and we did a lot of stuff. But again, the risk of having a bad algorithm doesn't kill people. And I think that there's some of that, that nature has not been played out fully. You know, that it's interesting you bring that up because I've argued the other side of that in that yeah, debate. So there we go. The, um, no, there's a large company hired a bunch of data scientists and just turned them loose on data. They weren't oil and gas right. people. They were just data scientists and a 23 year old messing with data who've never actually even been out in a field, literally figured out that we could reduce accidents by pumpers, 75, 80%, reduce wear and tear on the trucks and all, if the truck just never went in reverse. <laughs> so they, they redid all of their, all of their pumping um, routes so that never went in reserve, reverse, and it wound up being true. So, and, and that person arguably should get promoted Totally. and that person got 3% raise and told I, in 12 years, you'll be up for vice president. Yes. And so you hear that from the young folks too, is that, Hey man, I did all this great stuff and I didn't get promoted. That's a real I, I did, issue. I'm, yeah, I'm, I did that. At, uh, I'm telling you, I'm, I complained about this even when I was at a big super major, this is a problem. We need to open our eyes to these young staff that are smart and intelligent and they're looking to do great things at the company, but the company and the way they've run their business for over a hundred years is not changing and they're not changing quick enough. I'd love to hear from the audience. What do you think? Exactly. I know quite a few online and I know I've heard from you saying the same things. It's kind of bullshit. Yeah, no, we've got John third party data analysis is critical for industry efficiency. No doubt. All right, let's go into what I'll call general commodities okay. talk. So if we look at U.S. gasoline, it was down almost 8% in August versus 2019. It was in July, it was even worse. It was down 8.2% versus July 22 versus 2019. And what we'd kind of seen is U.S. gasoline outside of airline stuff, which I think at its peak was about 90% of pre-pandemic. Mm -hmm. Gasoline had been rocking kind of meeting uh, pre-pandemic type levels, boom, we see demand destruction. Is that price? Is that coming recession? All of the above? Is this the canary in the coal mine or? I mean, you've got, you've got a, a few things at stake. One is prices are high. And if you talk to people around the country, which I've done, even in some of the hootie tootie places around the country, they complain, the workers complain about gas prices. It, it actually makes a dent in their budget. That's a huge issue. Secondly, you've got Zoom culture. I mean, most of us sort of, you know, um, retired people and those, many of those that work don't need to go in the office anymore. So they're not driving. And, and third, I think there is, you know, we're starting to see people afraid of like this incoming um, recession, depression, maybe we don't know. So they're trying to save money, which I think is wise. Because kind of the similar thing we've got, and you and I were talking about these stats this morning, you know, we're running out of diesel. 
If we look at the reserve level of diesel we have at this time of year, we're at the lowest level we've been since 1951. And right now we have 25 days of supply. Back in 1951 at that same level, that was 102 days of supply. So, you know, the worry about diesel, right, is guess what happens? Everything you use is shipped somewhere in a truck that's powered off of diesel. Well, we've sold some of our strategic reserves to China. Um, we, we have an administration, and, and again, just from an economics point of view, not from a political point of view, from an economics point of view, nothing makes sense right now. Why are we limiting production? You know, why are we threatening to go after the oil and gas companies? I mean, this is all these things sort of put our sovereignty at risk. And if you look at the diesel issue, what's going to happen? You're going to see, you know, a lot of us complain because we don't get our Amazon stuff on time, but it's really going to impact the rest of the country, especially those that are actually making this country work. When they don't have diesel, they're not going to go anywhere. Nothing's going to move. And that's going to create another stall in the economy, which I think in some ways is purposeful. All this is pretty common sense, but we're seeing policies that make no sense unless you're trying to do this on purpose. What say you? Well, so, you know, if we look at Europe and we say Europe is a year ahead of us or 18 months ahead right. of us, they basically last winter started making the decision, do we keep people warm or do we have industry? And they went with, let's keep people alive. Germany, right before the war, right before Russia invaded, went into restrictions on natural gas usage so they could fill all their storage and the like. And they've cut out a lot of industry. I mean, Colin and I, it seems like every other week on BDE, we're talking about a fertilizer plant in Europe that closed or right. glass That's manufacturing right. or whatever. And I just worry, we, do we get to that point in the United States where literally we're having to use our fuel to keep people warm and we don't have the cheap energy that we've had for the last 10 to 12 years to power our industry? Because at the end of the day, where rubber re meets the road is earnings on the S&P 500 and what that means for the stock market. Yeah, I mean, let's let's not do a history lesson, but if you go around the world, what companies are the are the superpowers? Those that have affordable energy, because affordable energy powers industry across the board. So I think what you're going to see is um, we're in trouble, and you're seeing that from a, the the political landscape. You're seeing that play out. Yeah, and and I do this every chance I get because this has literally been my least favorite law my whole life. I mean, part of this issue and why the Northeast is really struggling with their diesel supplies is the Jones Act. And basically what the Jones Act does is if you go from U.S. port to U.S. port, you have to have a ship built in America, a U.S. crew, tick on down the list. And it was I'm, I think the Jones Act is the U.S. Maritime Law of 1920. It's 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 a hundred years old. Sub 1920. I think it's 1912. Yeah. So it's over a hundred years old. And just looking through some math, if you use a Jones Act compliance vessel to deliver diesel, it costs like 18 cents a gallon and foreign vessels are eight cents a gallon. So it's it's 
adding 10 cents and there just aren't enough Jones Act compliant ships. There's not enough to, vessels. And it's they're funny, not enough vessels. Some of my buddies that are, are traders um, who actually focus exclusively on Jones Act are making a killing. Like it's it's good time to be in, in this business. Um, but unfortunately, it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, we've talked about this. Uh, why can't we buy alcohol in, on Sunday in Texas or a car <laughs> for that matter? Yeah. I mean, let's go back to things that really don't make sense. Now, yeah. Jones Act is probably more important. But for me personally, I think being able to go to Specs on a Sunday is, you know, you know what, you know where I've, we need, you, you know where I've taken my alcoholism. <laughs> if I can't fucking get my act together to buy my Sunday booze on Saturday, Saturday, I don't deserve the right to booze. I mean, but we are instant gratification economy now, right? I can buy stuff on Amazon on Sunday. I can buy food on Sunday. No, you can you can buy alcohol at a store after twelve o'clock, but you can't buy liquor. So you can buy beer and wine. All right. Fair enough. There we go. <laughs> I'm still not going to concede that point, but that's fair. Nor, nor should you. So, <laughs> all righty. This is your baby. Tell us the next story because you were reading this about the neck, the national climate plans, and this is just wild. You know that I'm a, uh, a climate investor. You know, it was energy investor, but I just said, let's just go ahead and say climate because I don't want everyone else to claim that word. I, I'm claiming it. I'm a climate investor. But I have a lot of skepticism and pessimism around climate investments. There's a lot of bad investments going on right now. It's crazy. But one of the things, stories I heard, saw today in the Financial Times, national climate plans submitted by 200 nations around the world require... 1.2 billion hectares of land for basically tree planting, nature-based solutions. So 1.2 billion hectares, um, that's actually larger land mass than the entire United States. So not only do we need to reforest the already, this doesn't count the existing forestry around the world. So we need to add another 1.2 billion so you're asking, okay, how big is their global land area? The global land mass is roughly 13 billion hectares. So basically, we need to add another 9% or 10% of the world needs to be planted with more trees. That's not going to happen. So I think what the alarms are going off is, wait a minute, all these plans submitted don't make any sense. It's just not going to happen. So I found that to be another interesting data point because we're now starting to track climate initiatives and realizing, like, wait a minute, guys, this makes zero sense at all, which actually is good news for the oil and gas industry. But, you know, that's the juxtaposition right there. And who was it? I think it was Curry from Goldman Sachs that put out, I forget what the exact stats were, but we've spent $3.8 trillion on renewable infrastructure. And we've gone from 82% of our electricity is generated by hydrocarbons to 81 percent right so i mean just extrapolate out to to where we have to go you know this is my favorite th story to tell and i've told it a million times so people are actually shutting off they're going to the bathroom they'll come back for finger of the week they love finger of the week but we need more whales have i told you my whale story i love so, this story let's go so so the average whale when it dies it will have 33 tons of carbon uh within it and it dies and it sinks to the bottom of the ocean Who counts that by the way i don't know okay There's, somebody you know someone the weirdest people on the planet are dog breeders right. doing an autopsy on a whale is probably a close second <laughs> yeah. so anyway they they uh they capture 33 tons of of co2 
anything that eats the whale captures the carbon, it sinks when it dies. So it's basically under the water, right? It's not touching the atmosphere. Um, the other interesting thing is they figured out the most recent studies are showing that 40% of all photosynthesis on the planet is done by plankton in the ocean. Yeah. And the greatest thing for plankton is actually whale shit because of all the nutrients in it. Who knew? And, you know, 200 years ago, we had, call it, 5 million whales on the planet. Again, I don't know who counted that. As a that. dog returns to his vomit, is, it, is that as a whale returns to its plankton? Because there you go. it eats its shit and, it eat, and, and the whales eat the plankton? What's going on here? Well, we need to figure out that. Can the, can the whale lick its balls? <laughs> <laughs> Why does a whale lick its balls? <laughs> because it can. Yeah, it can. Uh, salt water might help that. I don't know. I don't, I don't know where I'm going with that. But anyway... No, so uh, saying whales are the future is what I'm. I'm saying. Here. I was saying we've got 1.2 million whales out there. If we could increase the population of that, it would actually potentially take a take a dent in the CO2 problem. The uh, so you know I'm really good friends with the singer Jewel and and all and I went to her and I told this story. And she Dallas, was Dallas, right? Uh, no, she well, she lived in Stevensville for a while okay. when she was married to Ty Murray. And I went to her and I was telling her the whale story. And she's like, is this true? And I said, I promise you it's true. And I think you need to write a love album or a love song to album whales. for whales so that we can have more whales fucked. And she looked at me and I haven't heard from her since. So maybe, <laughs> maybe that didn't. Maybe that didn't go over so well. But is that no. why Colin's not here today? Yeah, exactly. Right. Exactly. You haven't heard the whale fuck joke yet. <laughs> so Kirk's like, this will be my last time on BDE. So. No, it, it is interesting that we're starting to come to that realization. I think ultimately the only way we're going to get out of this is uh, technology, and it's going to have to be some sort of carbon capture, and the only way we're going to get there is shot on goals. I mean, we gotta we got to throw a lot more money at it. Um, Absolutely. And nuclear. Let's go back to nuclear at some point. Exactly. We always say on the podcast, you know, if we invented nuclear yesterday, we'd be going, we solved it. I solved it. <laughs> Look at a lot of nuclear deals. Uh, interesting. I bet. So, all right. You were cool enough to speak at Fuse last week. Let's do a quick download on Fuse. What did you think about it? What's something you learned? I mean, I think that the quality of the people there were was, was outstanding. The quality of the content was outstanding. The creativity of the venue, how it was set up the sponsors. I mean, it's just something we don't see. And I think it partly it's because of the demographic and sort of, you know, the guys behind digital wildcatters are cool. They think differently. They've got sort of the groundswell. It's definitely from attending a lot of energy events versus this one, this was built by the people for the people versus sort of built by people that think it's good for the people. And I was, I was really impressed and it was nice. It's good to be there. You're, you're cool to say that. I'm actually going to have a bit of criticism on Fuse, and it's really kind of criticizing me. So so guilty as charged. To your point about content being mm -hmm. really good, I mean, we had, some, we had a panel with John Gibson and an astronaut talking about the technology we would need to colonize the moon. We had folks talking about carbon capture. Mm -hmm. We had a panel called 99 Problems and Energy Ain't One. I mean, it, it, and it was really high-level content. And I saw networking based on, I hadn't seen Kirk in a while. I'm going to go have a beer with Kirk. I saw networking happen where 
oil and or renewables guy heard an oil and gas guy talking and it was, oh my gosh, I could use help scaling my business. I didn't appreciate how great oil and gas is at scaling something. They sought people out and said, I want to go talk. And then yeah. they'd go get a beer. And I think that high level of content may get obscured by some of the quote unquote stupid things we do. Like during that 12 hour fuse-a-thon talking about the event, I wore a cow costume for a while. We ate crickets and stuff. And so that's something, I mean, I'm just silly like that, but at the end of the day, it's something to be mindful of that maybe that obscures a little bit of really the high level discussions that happen there. I'm not for making it more mainstream because the obscurity, people don't go to event, the people go to events to meet people, right? And they also want to have a good time. If you can do both, that's a home run. That's the key. And I think you need to keep the obscurity and the, and the randomness because that makes it interesting. Because we all go to conferences we're like, damn, I have to go to another stupid conference. I don't want to be here. You know, where's the buffet? All right. So I can keep the cow costume. I feel keep like I've been, I've been blessed. All right. We always like to close the show I mean, with the finger of the week. And it was so obvious to give it to Biden after the windfall profits, but we're not going to do that. We're not doing it. We're not doing it. Here we go. Kirk is the guest. I let you so choose. So who's Emily Oster? I, many of you, some of you know that I had COVID in 2019 when I was in China. Um, and I haven't had COVID since. But but Emily Oster wrote an article in The Atlantic this week saying, let's declare a pandemic amnesty. So basically, for all of those that were forcing people, people to get jabs, that were forcing people to get the jab or they were going to get fired, She's asking for those people to, to be given amnesty. And I think that's bullshit. We all knew what was happening with this vaccine. We knew that there wasn't data and we just sort of let it, it's not necessarily we let it happen. We knew it was happening. And some of us avoided it saying, look, I'm not participating. I'm out. But we know we're not going to give amnesty to people that knew exactly that they potentially were doing harm or didn't know whether they're doing harm or not. And now they're saying, hey, we didn't know. We didn't know at the time. Like, wait a minute. We all knew what was happening at the time. We we're all uncomfortable. But forcing others to do something that they didn't want to do, I think there is, shouldn't be amnesty. And I think that's why Emily gets the finger of the week. What say you? Um, the thing, I'm probably less staunch on this, but the non-negotiable for me is you have to step up and say, I made that mistake. You know, oh. I was wrong. I mean, if if people would step up and say, I was wrong, I was scared about my grandmother, the government told me these these vaccines would would uh, reduce transmittability and all. I'm sorry I believed them. I apologize. And I'm not saying they have to make full restitution, but at least acknowledge that. And they're not doing that. They're like, well, we yeah. we, to we told you it would be better for you. I. I uh, had a mild case of COVID because I had the vaccine. Yeah. And and look, I got vaccinated. I mean, I'm not anti the vaccines. I I am really anti 
the fact there was no data and they made that pronouncement of you have to get vaccinated or you're going to kill grandmother or, and that's why I'm going to fire you. That's my problem. Yeah. You're right. We knew, we were on the same page there. Yeah. I think I, those that chose or didn't choose, they're all good to me. It's the it's those that that knew better, that had the data or lack thereof and 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 promoted a narrative that's wrong and it kept changing on us. And that to me is why Emily deserves the finger of the week. There you go. And Carrie was kind enough to say preach. So Kirk, you were very cool to join us today. Appreciate you you coming in. I enjoyed this way more than Colin. Oh man. Colin can be preachy and grumpy. You're a delight to be with. So I mean, hopefully you'll come back and do this again with us. Anytime, man. Anytime. And I'll be on your other show. Yeah, come on. Chuck Yates needs a job. job. There we go. Perfect. <laughs> Digital Outcatters, thanks for tuning in today. Do all the things that uh, we ask you to do for podcasts. Give good comments. Subscribe to it. This is available anywhere you get podcasts under Big Digital Energy. Thank you for tuning in.